You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you're listening to our first episode of season two of Vernacular. Yay, season two, we made it. So season two is going to be a little bit different from season one. You'll kind of pick up on the changes, I think, as we go along and as we listen to more episodes. But a couple things quickly. One, we have contributors now to the show and you'll hear more about that before we talk to our second guest, a person that you will probably recognize if you've listened to us before. Second, we're going to have probably multiple guests in most episodes of season two. So previously in season one, if you've listened to us before, you know that basically we talk to one person or uh, one couple for the entire length of the podcast, and we're going to do it differently for season two. So multiple people per episode. Multiple topics. Right. Multiple topics. Although we reserve the right to still do, you know, one kind of special interest episode where we talk to one person or one group of people, one interview, but for the most part, we'll be doing multiple topics, multiple people. So that'll be pretty fun. Yeah. We like to think of it as the vernacular podcast variety show. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going to be more of a variety show approach, I guess. For you guys and for us. It'll just maybe be more interesting that way. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, you know, season one was interesting and we got good feedback, but I think yeah. one thing we can do to improve is just have more people on each episode. Yeah. So, but we'll still be in the same, uh, like time frame, so we won't be going a lot longer. We won't we won't be having three hour long interviews with with three guests. Yeah, that would be hard to listen to. It would, yeah. So before we jump into our guests for this, introducing them, the guests that we have for this episode, let's just recap our break and talk about fall and summer. And I can't believe that summer is over. And I can't believe that Labor Day is right around the corner. I know. It's this weekend. Yeah. We were trying to get this episode around and pushed out by Labor Day. Yeah. Where did summer go? I don't know. It's a great question. We had this big trip that we were looking forward to all summer long. And that's what we did in part. And it was amazing. August. And it was great, but it was just like that thing that you're you're waiting for and anticipating and then it happens and it's over and then you're just like, yeah, for a while it seemed like it was just all the way in the future and then it was here and now it's, it was a month ago. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, after we ended uh, season one, Sally and I and Esther went to Boston and New York, not in that order. I guess we went to New York first and then Boston, but we just visited the cities, hung out there. I was in a wedding in Boston. So we kind of used that as an excuse to go out there, but it was pretty cool. We had a great place that we stayed in midtown manhattan we walked all around midtown and the village yeah the village chelsea did a lot of walking in manhattan and a then a lot of eating a lot a of a lot of eating yeah coffee we had some really good finding. pizza in manhattan yeah so then we went to after a few days in manhattan we went up to boston we took the amtrak and uh spent i guess three or four days in boston yeah and there we stayed we utilized for the first time airbnb yeah, we had a great place right next to Boston Common. Right in Beacon Hill. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. beautiful. It was within walking distance of everything in yeah, Boston. <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, and the weather was amazing while we were there. In Manhattan, it was hot. But in Boston, it was like high 70s, low 80s. It was yeah, gorgeous. It was beautiful. I need that weather right now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I know even though this is, you know, we're approaching the end of summer with Labor Day, we're suffering through mid 90 degree heat right now. And it's, yeah. it's pretty rough. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to fall, especially, and 
uh, Starbucks, I think, just came out with their pumpkin spice. Okay, so I was going to ask about that because today I was listening to Spilled Milk, one of my favorite podcasts that I've mentioned before. And they, I was listening to an old episode because I'm all caught up on their current episodes. And I was listening to an old episode about pumpkin spice. And they were talking about all things pumpkin spice and talking about the pumpkin spice latte, which I do love. And I was just wondering if it is out already because I feel like prior to Labor Day is too early to bring out the pumpkin spice latte. Well, I would say definitely 95 degree weather is too early. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I'm less concerned about when you bring it out chronologically and more just what the weather is when you bring it out. But I think it symbolizes fall and you're right. It doesn't feel like summer. I mean, it doesn't feel like fall. It feels like summer, but Labor Day is supposed to be like the hurrah end of summer celebration. And this is the last gasp of summer. summer. Yeah. So I'm a little... Well, I'm pretty sure I saw something about... I'm just going to be in denial about it. I'm pretty sure I saw that Starbucks has their pumpkin spice lattes out. That's crazy. And uh, M&M's uh, has a new... Is that is that the... What's the parent company? I guess Mars. So Mars... Oh, I don't know. The parent company of M&M's has a new M&M's flavor called pumpkin spice. That sounds And it gross. tastes exactly like a pumpkin spice latte. I tried this yesterday. It tastes terrible because I don't want my M&M to taste like my coffee. That's, yeah, yeah. It's not good. I don't recommend it. Yeah, because first when you said that, I was like, but I like the pumpkin spice latte. Right. And so but when... I yeah. want in my M&M to taste like something else. Like chocolate? Chocolate. But I like I mean, the call peanut me butter weird. one. Yeah, but that's chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah, it's not just true. peanut butter. That's true. That's true. And I guess the pumpkin spice is chocolate and pumpkin spice, but I just that's taste weird. pumpkin spice. Yeah. It's gross. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, I don't recommend that. But yeah, these symbols of fall, fast approaching pumpkin spice. I'm looking forward to football. Uh, I'm in two fantasy football leagues this year, and we just had our drafts for both of them. Pretty sure I'm going to win both leagues. <laughs> so I'll be updating all of you on my fantasy football progress <laughs> as the season goes on. I thought about having a guest on to talk about fantasy football drafts, but I think we're just a little bit late because most drafts have taken oh, place by the time happened. we're releasing. Yeah. yeah. But maybe we'll bring on a special guest to uh, do fantasy football analysis Ooh, for future episodes. That's a good idea. Yeah. I could benefit from that. But you're not in the you're not in the league. Just like talking about football, <laughs> the more that people talk about, the more I'll just know, osmosis learn. Sort of. We have to get you in a league next year. Yeah, I know. We talked about that for this year, but I forgot. Well, uh, yeah, you can play in one of my leagues next year. Okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> then you can just trade me all you your good players. Tell me who to, who to get. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just make a super team with our powers we just combined. Be in cahoots. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be awesome. I'm looking forward to yeah cooler weather too and. Wearing, you know, sweaters or just scarves. Yeah. Boots. I'm looking forward to those things. Yeah. Uh, None of which apply to you, but right. the girls out there will understand. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have that nice jacket that you got me for, oh, that's right, uh, my for birthday your birthday that I want to wear again. So yeah. I can kind of relate to the scarf thing. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I love fall. Like, it's the best season in terms of average temperatures and that, like, cool, crisp fresh air yeah and the scent of leaves oh man it's just amazing yeah, i'm looking forward to not having to go outside before 7 30 in the morning in order to go outside and not boil yeah that'll be good <laughs> well i mean it's like i was gonna go on a run today but it was 94 degrees yeah and i don't know 60 percent humidity afternoon bike rides nope not yeah, happening yeah, definitely not happening esther will just boil in her little seat <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not good or bake, I guess, maybe would be the right. better, <laughs> better analogy. Liquid boils, yeah. Yeah, so, so we're yeah. looking forward to fall so for goodbye, a whole bunch of reasons. Summer. Yeah, send us but a not note. Yet. Let us know what you're looking forward to about fall. Zach and Sally 
My name is just Z-A-C. No Z-A-C-H or Z-A-C-K. Just Z-A-C. Zach that's and Sally. That's a really good reminder because I don't think we usually mention that. Right. And maybe People we, could get confused. Maybe that's where all our emails went. That's where went. all of our fan mail is. Yes. They've done Z-A-C-H and Or something. Sally. Some other version of Zach. Yeah, maybe. Wow. So just Z-A-C. Zach and Sally, evernacularpodcast.com. Tell us what you're looking forward to about fall. Also, since we've changed our format for this show, just wanted to give an early plug here. Go ahead and rate us. Let us know what you think of this show. Either give us feedback through our email or just log on to iTunes, Stitcher, however you're listening, and give us a review there. Give us some feedback so we can improve. So we have two things lined up for today. I'll go in reverse chronological order. In the second part of the show, we're going to talk to Muriel. and She is one of our contributors. One of our contributors, a program which you'll hear more about right before we kick off that interview later in the show. But basically, Muriel from episode four of season one is an expert or an aspiring expert, perhaps I should say, in constitutional law. So yeah, we're going to look at. I think she would at, take issue with the expert. Term oh right, because she's just yeah, she's a student, PhD student. But still, I mean, a PhD student knows she's been studying a heck this of a lot stuff for a while. Yeah, so definitely more than we do. Knows her con law. So we're going to walk through the Supreme Court's previous term and talk through some of the major cases that are interesting, caught our attention. That you probably haven't heard about. And that you probably haven't heard about. Unless you are a con law nerd like Muriel. Right. And then second, we're just going to ask her to kind of give us a peek ahead into the Supreme Court's next term, which starts in October. But before we get to Muriel, we're going to talk to Maymay. Maymay has a background in business, which we thought was interesting because we haven't really spent a dedicated, dedicated a show just to talking to someone about business. Yep. She worked in finance and then went to business school. Right. And then worked for a top three consulting firm and now works for a major firm in Atlanta. That so, makes your Dixie, Dixie cups, cups, right? Dixie cups. Yeah. We've and all, we've all drank out of Dixie cups or something. Like I don't that? know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. You've used their products. I guarantee it. And then we also talk about some news items that, um, relate to finance and business like Amazon. Right. I don't know how many of you saw the Amazon article in the New York Times, but that's worth a read. We'll link to it on our website and we talk about it with Maymay. So stick around for that right after Maymay. Muriel's coming up. So enjoy. Oh, sorry, but we almost forgot to mention before we go to the interview with Maymay, um, during that interview, we were experiencing a thunderstorm and we lost power at one point and yeah, we actually we were, had to restart the interview. Maybe got cut of, off. That's right. I yeah. About that. So you're going to hear some thunder in the background. Hopefully it won't be too distracting. Um, but yeah, so that's our little announcement. Kind of adds like an Edgar Allan Poe quality to the whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's dark and scary and stormy. And then in our conversation with Muriel, we, at the beginning, for some reason, she had some weird static going on. So just stick with it. Don't it worry. You can long. understand everything that she's saying and it doesn't get worse. It, it'll just get better and disappear. So don't worry. Um, you won't have to listen to the, it sound like that the whole time. <laughs> and you should be able to hear everything that, understand everything that she says. Yeah. So just, just disclaimers before you begin. All right, ah, ready, we go. go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Maymay. Well, if you want to just take a couple minutes to introduce yourself to our listeners, that would be great. Sure, absolutely. Um, so my name is Maymay. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and spent about 10 years out outside of the South after high school. So I went to college in Wheaton, Illinois, at Wheaton College, where I studied math. From there, I went to Pennsylvania, where I worked in finance, doing interest rate and foreign currency derivatives. I worked there for four years, a company called Chatham Financial, before I went to business school at the University of Virginia. It was at Darden School of Business Administration. 
From Charlottesville, Virginia, I came down to Atlanta to work at Bain & Company doing management consulting and worked there for almost two years and then recently moved over to Georgia Pacific where I do pricing and trade strategy for um, Dixie Paper Plates and Vanity Fair napkins. Wow, that's quite a path. <laughs> yep. so, when I, so when I'm upset about the price of Dixie cups, I have you to thank for that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Did you always know that you wanted to go to business school or... Was it your job um, prior to business school that, that prompted that decision? That's a great question. I actually did not want to go to business school when oh. I graduated from college. I was thought that that did not sound like fun at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but found this job at Chatham, which I, I, I thought I was going to go to medical school, actually, when I was in college. And um, about halfway through my junior year, realized I didn't want to be a doctor. So I was really at a loss for what I was going to do with my career and worked with career services and they're the ones who put me in in touch with Chatham. Um, so I worked there for four years and I was really doing the math behind the, the model. So all the math that went into the financial derivatives, which are not the The, same. They're really complicated. Yeah. They're not (laughs) the same as like calculus derivatives, um, which is, was helpful when I figured that out. Uh, (laughs) um, so I was there for four years and, through that experience, realized that derivatives is such a very small part of finance, and finance is such a very small part of business, that it was becoming increasingly difficult to try to understand the whole world of business through the lens of just derivatives. So that was really what prompted the move to business school to really, I was really interested, over over the course of those four years, I had become really interested in understanding how all the different parts of business fit together. And understanding kind of the business that sat behind the derivatives that I worked with day in, day out. Did you like business school once you got there or was it not what you were expecting? I did like business school. Um, The first year was a tough transition back into a workload of school. Um, Darden's known for being more strenuous on the workload, if you will. So that was hard to get used to, but over the course of the two years, I really enjoyed business school and felt like it was a pretty unique opportunity to to go back to school after having worked for four for four years. And um, you don't really know how good you have it when you get a Christmas break <laughs> until you start working, and then you realize it's really amazing and it's really amazing to to get the opportunity to learn about things that you want to learn about. Yeah, definitely. Now. Here's a question for you. I was reading an article in the Chicago Tribune the other day about uh-huh. the online MBA and the rise in online yeah. MBAs lately. What are yep. your thoughts on the like the advantages of the online MBA? Because I've looked at it, and um, my verdict from my limited research has been that there's not a whole lot of reason to spend what ends up being a very similar price for the mm-hmm. online MBA that comes really without all the advantages of building mm-hmm. that business network and having the face-to-face with um, world-class professors that you might get at another MBA program. Right. Well, I think it a little bit depends on what you want your MBA for. If you just want it on your resume as I've got an MBA and, um, then maybe an online MBA is fine. If you want it for the experience of learning a lot, um, and really growing in your career and kind of changing the trajectory of your career, I don't think that an online MBA uh, gives you the same experience. I, and in terms of the cost, I'm surprised it's the same cost um, to get an online MBA, but I 
I do feel like an in-person MBA is, is a different experience. I think sure. really you learn how to interact with your fellow students. And, and that's a huge part of it, actually. At least at Darden, the expectation was that each person, even if it, if it was a class, say, that they had a lot of experience at, it was their job to, to give their experience to the class and to share the, their experience and really teach the class. Um, obviously, the teacher was the main teacher. <laughs> but, right. um yeah, so you for sure would miss out on all that. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think the price is not exactly the same, but you're not paying pennies on the dollar for the online experience. Interesting. You're paying, I mean, from what I've looked at, you're paying like anywhere from 60 to 90% huh. of the in-residence price. So it's, it's not like that great of a discount. Yeah, no, I, I think it's worth the extra 40, 10 to 40% to, right. to yeah, get I it in think person. So too. <laughs> and I mean, um, I think maybe it makes sense for people who are tied to a career that they really can't leave. Right. Um, but I think that's a pretty small number of people. So it's interesting. I know that at Darden, um, they had just started kind of looking into the, the massive online courses, MOOCs, and they had piloted a couple when I was there and they had just extraordinary enrollment in the courses. And it would be, I think over a thousand, like thousands of students would enroll in these courses from around the world. And kind of the perspective was you can learn there are things that you can learn in an online type course and so it's a more efficient way to learn some of the information to you know scale it um but then there are other classes that that wouldn't work so like i don't know maybe some of the more tactical work that you're doing um accounting is what comes to mind that's probably a really bad example but perhaps you could learn accounting in a massive online course versus you probably wouldn't want to learn negotiations that way. Right, you that need to sense. have the or tactical organizational management. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I I know the other problem with those MOOCs is that so many people sign up and few yeah. people finish. And I'm mm -hmm. certainly one of the problem there because <laughs> it's so easy to go into Coursera and find these really yes. interesting classes and be like, oh, I want to take one of, one of these. You should learn. take some of the ones from Darden. Yeah, you know, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking I might have signed up for one. Okay. At some point, because I've signed up for a couple. I like Wharton offers a couple Coursera yeah. courses. Yep. Um, and I've taken, well, taken is a very strong word. I've um, registered for <laughs> several of these and, you know, started them. And by started, I mean watched, you know, part of the first video or something like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. But I have actually have a friend who did some research on MOOCs and basically mm -hmm. did a lot of analysis on the kind of completion rates for these and uh, tried yeah. to find out what value they were actually offering. Because they bring a lot of really good resources to people right. all around the world for free in many instances. Right. Um, but the reality is that most of the people who start them don't finish them. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. But I'm glad you had a good online, or not, not, not online, <laughs> glad, a good in-residence in MBA experience. Yeah. I had good. a great in-residence MBA experience. <laughs> and what, what did you say you did right after the MBA? I worked for Bain & Company, a consulting firm. And how is that? I have some friends who are in consulting firms and they've complained to me about very long hours. Yeah, the hours aren't great. Um, <laughs> they were, um, it was, I, I think that I learned a lot working at Bain. I wouldn't say I loved my experience there. It's, uh, you're continually getting thrown into a different um, area. So first you'll be working in a professional sports team and then you'll be working in a utilities company. So it's just crazy things that you are thrown into different, um, 
different industries. So you learn a lot and you learn how to get up to speed really quickly. And you learn a lot of different kind of things within all those areas. So you might work on an organizational design where you're trying to figure out a better org structure, how the company could be more effective uh, if they had a different organizational structure. So all it really gives you kind of that broad range. I always thought of, uh, I, I guess maybe because I thought I was going to medical school, so I always think of things in medical terminology, but I thought of um, business school similar to medical school. And then I felt like working at Bain was a little bit like my residency. So mm. putting into practice all the things I had learned in theory at business school. So of course, you... it was much shorter than business, than medical school and residency. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yes. Did you find that your, all of your other classmates at business school went on to consulting jobs or was that just one of many options? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it was, it was one of many options. I would say, I think the numbers are about a third of my classmates went into consulting. That's about, pretty high though. It's pretty high. Um, maybe a third went into investment banking and then a lot of people would go into marketing and some people went into like a rotational program. So they would do a leadership type program. I would say those are kind of the four biggest buckets. So help me understand the consulting landscape. Cause my understanding sure. is certainly limited, but, um, my understanding limited understanding is that there are basically the kind of the big three firms and that's mm -hmm. Bain and company McKinsey and Boston consulting group, BCG. That's right. Um, what are, like, are there differences between those two, those three, or are they all just rivals to do exactly the same thing? Um, so, how, how do you come to a decision on where you wanted to go out of those three? Sure. Sure. That's a great question. So overall, they're very similar, I would say. Um, but there are going to be differences within them. So they do, they are competitors. They're doing the same type of work for companies. Um, and then the differences are going to be. I always describe it along the degree of generalist to specialist. So I would say in terms of if you just want to focus on um, financial services and you want to start doing that right out of undergrad or sorry, right out of business school, um, you want to be kind of an expert within financial services. Um, kind of the expert route is, is more typical of like a McKinsey, um, versus Bain is going to be more the generalist type route. So okay. Bain doesn't, you might be able to specialize in financial services right out of, um, business school, depending on which office you go to. But in general, Bain wants you to kind of work in different industries. And, um, the reason for that is because it, it really does lead to, um, kind of more creative solutions if you can say, oh, remember this time I was working on, you know, this consumer product goods company and we did this. I wonder if that would work over here in whatever other kind of industry you're working in and, and ideas that you might not have come up with if this is your third time you're working on the exact same project and financial right. services. Um, so Bain is going to be a little bit more generalist than the others. Um, and I would put BCGs kind of in the middle on that generalist specialist range. And then, um, the other thing that's actually really different between the firms is the staffing model. So Bain is staffed 
fully locally. So it's all focused around um, your local office. So I worked in the Atlanta office and um, you can kind of draw a line from wherever the closest offices are. So the closest offices to Bain Atlanta are going to be Washington, D.C. and um, Texas. And so Bain Atlanta would cover kind of everything from those other offices closer to Atlanta. So a lot of time on the road. So yes, a lot of time on the road, but also less time on the road because I'm not flying to Seattle for my client every week. I would only be flying to Charlotte or Nashville. So um, within the Southeast of the United States versus um, the other firms take either a regional staffing model. So they will be staffed within their region, which could be, um, anywhere in call it the Southeast of the U S but not necessarily, um, focused on Atlanta or a global staffing model, which would be anywhere in the U S or globally. So you could be on a plane for a lot more hours a week at one of the different firms. Um, and then the other thing that's really interesting about Bain is that you're always staffed on cases with people from your local office. So, um, I always worked with an Atlanta partner, an Atlanta manager, and other consultants at the Atlanta office versus working with people that I maybe didn't know um, from the Chicago office or from the L.A. office. So there's a lot of benefit, and you start to hear, you start to build a reputation within your office that can be more easily recognized um, because the people you're working with are all in the same office, which is really helpful. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So are you mm-hmm. glad that you chose Bain over those yes, other two? Okay. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was a challenging experience. <laughs> yes. Yes. For sure. For sure. So I take it maybe you can't even say who your clients were because of non-disclosure agreements, but it sounds like based on the model that you just described, you would not have worked with Seattle-based Amazon. <laughs> I did not work with any companies in Seattle. Bummer. I was going to ask you, <laughs> did you see the piece in the New York Times about Amazon? I did. Okay. Yes. What were your thoughts on that? I was really glad I didn't work there. <laughs> <laughs> for, our, for our listeners who did not get a chance to catch this, uh, it's a great read. We'll link it on our website. But the New York Times did what I think is essentially an expose on the kind of workplace environment at Amazon uh, and talked all about how Jeff Bezos and his executive leadership have built up a culture of um, a culture of absolute ambition that basically requires or highly discourages uh, employees from having a personal life outside of work. Uh, So one of the examples was emails are frequently sent past midnight and then followed up immediately by text messages demanding to know why emails were not answered. (laughs) Wow. Um, So, you know, on the one hand, this looks like a horrible place to work. On the other hand, uh, Amazon's become an amazing company with an incredible market value and they just surpassed, uh, I think it was Walmart as the largest retailer in the wow. world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, these things have success, but at what price? I, I thought it was yeah. an interesting article. And there's been a lot of um, a lot of social media response to it and follow-up articles on a whole bunch of different outlets. So. Did they interview people who, employees, current employees at Amazon? Yes, current and former. So did they think that it was worth it, the cost? I think there were, there were mixed responses. I mean, some people said, you know, the reason I work here is because Amazon demands, you know, bigger than life results from its employees and they accept nothing less than the best. And other people were saying, I couldn't work there for very long because it mm-hmm. just destroyed me. Yeah. And I think it was interesting. One of the people said, like, I hated it when I was there, but I kind of got addicted to it. Right. 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 Um, I kind of love the rush, but 
understand that it, it comes at a cost. So, so my, um, some of my former colleagues and I were emailing back and forth about that email and just saying, oh, I wonder how much, like, how much equity do you think that people who started our year from business school got there? And I, I just remember thinking, not enough. <laughs> like, yeah. Not yeah, enough to make exactly. it worth it. It was a really interesting read, though. So where yeah, do you definitely. see yourself in five years and where do you see yourself in 10 years? That's a great question. I wish I knew exactly. <laughs> um, so Georgia Pacific isn't the, the end game. <laughs> I, it, it actually has been a really good fit so far. Um, so I've only been there for about four months, but I really like it. And I think that, um, the work is really interesting and people do tend to make a career there. So, uh, it, I might be there still in 10 years, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to those of our listeners who are interested in a business career, what kinds of tips would you give to them? So I think that, um, at least the business that I've been in, and I think it's helpful for any parts of business. It's really a combination of, analytical skills and people skills. And essentially you have to prove to any company that you're working for, um, that you have both of those skill sets. And if you think about the interview process, it's a lot easier to get somebody to believe you have people skills in an interview than it is to get them to believe you have analytical skills in an interview. (laughs) Um, so if you can kind of have it on your resume, um, for me, it was being a math major. Like it was written on my resume. It has math major, had a good GPA, like, okay, I don't have to worry about our analytical skills from the perspective of, of somebody who might be interviewing me. Yeah. Um, and so I would just say if there's a way to kind of vet out those analytical skills, if it be through your undergrad degree or through business school, with, um, a focus on finance or something like that could be, could be really helpful depending on how analytical your, um, the part of business you're going into is. And then I think the thing, and I have seen this again and again, I, I helped interview, um, I haven't interviewed anyone at Georgia Pacific yet. Um, but I did a lot of recruiting at Bain and also at Chatham. And I think that it's, it's amazing to me how much it matters if somebody is engaged or not. And it is, it's totally a game changer and you'll be in, um, interviews with people or just in conversations and like, they're not really like present. Um, and it's amazing how many people aren't present and it's amazing when people, how, how much of a difference it actually makes when somebody is truly Tracking engaged with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It just is like fundamental and, um, it's less than you'd think students who really are like, um, maybe not just students, students and other people that I've interviewed, um, less than half of the people are, I would say. Wow. Wow. Well, those are really good tips. And thank you so much for talking to us about your career and, um, what you're doing right now and where you've been. And we will, uh, best of luck as you're settling into your new job. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was great to chat with you guys. Yeah, Thanks, you too, Mimi. Great. Bye-bye. All right, so we're here with Muriel, and one of the new things we're doing on season two of Vernacular is having contributors join us for a lot of our conversations. So contributors are going to be people who are, are going to be people who are coming back on the show from time to time, 
someone who has a background or just an interest in the topic that we are discussing for that day. And they'll be coming on to help us have a conversation about these things. Yeah, and to make it more interesting than just listening to the two of us. <laughs> right. So, which is not that hard to do. Uh, so, Muriel is joining us. You people who have been listening to us for a while will recognize Muriel from season one, where we talked to her. She, in episode four. Episode four. She's a Minnesota-based PhD student in constitutional law and also a full-time mom. So, kudos to you, Muriel. But thanks for joining us on the show. It's great to be back. I'm really excited. So with your background in constitutional law, we thought you'd be the perfect person to help us break down the past term of the Supreme Court and maybe give us a sneak peek, look ahead to what the court could be looking at next term. Which starts in October, in October so next yeah. month. So these terms run October to June or through June, I guess. Is that right? Ish, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this October 2014 term just concluded in June, the next one starting in October, and we thought we could break down some of their key cases. Now, obviously, the headline case for the whole term last year was Obergefell, uh, which effectively said that the Constitution grants uh, gay marriage as a fundamental right. And that's the big headline case that I think stole a lot of attention from other cases. And you've probably heard about it. Right. So we're not going to talk about that one because you've probably heard about it. And uh, we think there are other things that are worth mentioning about this court term. Equally interesting, but just not as well known. Right. So we're going to talk about four different cases, uh, give about five minutes or so to each of these and break them down, talk about the issues, the outcome, implications, etc. So we'll kick it off with a court case that dealt with prison inmates. Yes. So this one we have, the question was, how long can your beard get in prison <laughs> before they, they stop you? <laughs> this is a really, it's a really big question. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and yet the outcome was 9-0. So all of the justices agreed. What was the name of this case? Uh, Holt v. Hobbs. Yes. Holt v. Hobbs, right. So Holt... Gregory Holt was the inmate who wanted to grow a beard for religious reasons. He Not wanted... my son, by the way. Right. Different a... Gregory. Very different Gregory. Good, important <laughs> distinction. So Gregory Holt wanted to grow a beard for religious reasons, and I think he wanted it to be a half-inch beard. Is yes. that right? Yes. So he wanted to grow a half-inch beard. The prison authorities say, no, you can't grow a half-inch beard. That's extremely dangerous because you could hide things like razor blades in your beard. Or SIM cards. Or SIM cards, Right. So prison authorities say no. Gregory Holt sues on First Amendment grounds, says he has a right to grow a half-inch beard. He actually wrote a handwritten petition to the Supreme Court. That's impressive. Yeah, that I takes, thought so. That takes some doing. Takes some dedication. Yeah. I complain about writing thank you notes by hand. <laughs> well, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts drafts his opinions longhand, so think oh, about that. Wow. Does he really? He does. Wow. Famously, yeah, among nerds. Famously among nerds. Um, <laughs> yes. So this petition is really interesting because it's not, you would think it's a First Amendment issue, but there's actually a federal law governing it, which makes it really clear the standard that the court needs to apply. I think that's the reason why it was such a clear outcome, um, why it was unanimous. So is this not, so did I misspeak? Is this not a first, did he not sue on First Amendment grounds? He didn't because there are previous Supreme Court precedents. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote a very decisive opinion, I want, I want to say in 1991, holding that the court does not offer relief for free exercise-based claims. Um, it's complicated, but basically uh, in most cases, the court's not going to, uh, not going to, 
extend relief on the basis of a First Amendment claim. So there's a federal law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act that this claim was based on, but it it imposes the same standard that had previously been imposed um, by the First Amendment, according to previous jurisprudence. In any case, it's a free exercise claim, and there's federal law protecting his exercise of religion. So that's the basis for the case. And he won his case in a unanimous decision was this unanimous it was. Mm-hmm. yeah so nine zero the court said he was allowed to grow this half inch beard and that right. was because the reasons that the prison had given for not allowing him to grow it were pretty 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 not lame silly but i guess <laughs> lame is a good not yeah, they, not compelling <laughs> right not compelling right so the standard that the court is required by federal law to impose is that if there's a substantial burden on religious exercise, which in this case, there wasn't actually a dispute about whether or not um, his desire to grow a beard was sincerely motivated by his religious beliefs. So that was kind of agreed on by everyone. But so in those cases um, where the ban imposed a burden on his religious exercise, the state um, in question, which I believe in this case was Alabama, has to demonstrate that it has a compelling interest in uh, whatever it's trying to accomplish and that it's using fairly narrowly tailored means. So what the court determined was that there are other ways to accomplish the end of prison security than requiring him to shave his beard. Right. So they could search the beard. They could right. search the beard. <laughs> uh, let me, I need to search your beard. Excuse me. Um, they also, Chief, or sorry, Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion in Holt v. Hobbs, also pointed out that the prison actually allows you to grow a quarter-inch beard if you have a dermatological condition that makes it painful or um, harmful for you to shave your beard every day. So the difference between a quarter-inch beard and a half-inch beard for security purposes was not perceived by the court to be significant. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense to me. I think, and I, I just find it interesting that they all agreed, but I guess, was it Justice Ginsburg who made a distinction between this and the Hobby Lobby case where they didn't all agree, which is also religious freedom? Right, so... Um, yeah, she wrote a concurrence in the results specifically distinguishing this case from the Hobby Lobby case, which was the previous term, based on a very similar federal law, because she said the difference here is that Holt's religious exercise does not affect anyone else in the way that she held in her Hobby Lobby dissent that um, those parties' religious exercise did. So that was her basis for distinguishing them. I think this will be a big thing to watch coming up because there are a lot of people talking about the future of religious freedom and how the court looks at religious freedom. And so this is one example where Mr. Holt's ability to grow a beard was unanimously upheld by the court. But then Justice Ginsburg, you know, has this sort of uh, distinguishing note in, in her concurrence, delineating this case uh, and other ones like the Hobby Lobby case. So I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes in the next few years. Yeah, well, I was reading a um, some Supreme Court scholar was saying that the Roberts Court is is you can expect to see more such religious freedom cases because I guess they are more interested in them. I'm not sure hmm, than past courts. Maybe I'm not sure exactly. But. Sure. Well, the court does determine its own docket, so right. there are thousands of cases a year that are petitioned to the court, and it only accepts a very small percentage of them. But um, 
yeah, this court does seem to have an interest in it. And there are cases actually in the lower courts right now about the application of the Hobby Lobby decision and how that is supposed to play out in practice. So I think we'll see even just that question um, from the previous term coming back up to the Supreme Court soon enough. Oh, yeah. okay. Interesting. Well, let's move on to a different case. This is not a religious freedom case, but it is a prison case. Uh, it was a case, Glossop v. Gross, brought by three prison inmates who were on death row who said that the means of their execution was unconstitutional because the drug used in the lethal injection... Violated the Eighth Amendment. Right, risked causing excruciating pain, thereby causing or constituting cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, And in this outcome, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 against the inmates. Uh, And this case, interestingly, was on the traditional uh, kind of liberal conservative divide. Uh, So Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer on the one hand... Kennedy, Roberts, Alito, Scalia, and Thomas on the other. So Kennedy, that that swing vote between the two sided with the conservatives in this case. And Alito wrote this opinion too, right? Yes. He did. So it's an interesting case because uh, it has to do with protocols for lethal injection. And the reason that the case came up at all is because the previous... So this is a... It's an Oklahoma case. um, And the previous protocol adopted by the state of Oklahoma for lethal injection was a three-drug combination, the first drug of which um, was a barbiturate, which is a powerful painkiller, and it kind of knocks you out, makes you insensate to pain. But through social pressures of various kinds, um, the state of Oklahoma found itself unable to obtain those drugs. So instead of just stopping its lethal injections, it switched its protocol to this, uh, the use of another drug. Uh, midazolam, right? Right? Midazolam? Yeah. Okay. My doctor husband says that's how you say it. (laughs) Thank you, John. Um, (laughs) So, uh, this is a sedative. So it would be something more along the lines of, um, like, I don't know, some, something to calm you down, not so much to knock you out. Okay. Um, And the question at issue in the case is whether at a sufficiently high dose, uh, it has the same effect as the, the sodium thiopental that they had previously tried to use that they can't get anymore um, of rendering you insensate to the pain of the drugs that they use to paralyze you in the second injection and then stop your heart in the third. So um, it's kind of an important question because if in fact the drug does not have the effect of keeping you asleep when you receive the very painful second and third injections, then uh, in her dissent, I believe Justice Kagan, is that, I think Justice Kagan um, compared the feeling that you would have from those second and third drugs to chemical equivalent of being burned alive. Wow. Yeah. So really important question, but but then I find it kind of a strange case because it seems like it's just pitting expert physicians against each other saying, well, this does cause great pain. This doesn't cause great pain. And I don't know, it just seems like an odd, it seems like a scientific question rather than a legal question. Right. But yeah, but I guess when it comes down to it though, the court needs to play that role because when there are questions like this, that right, really someone's gotta deal only in science. Yeah, the court has to hear that. But it is interesting to think about the justices being thrust into that role. People, you know, lay people who have studied law and not science, you know, determining the testimony of scientists pitted against each other. Yeah, and I don't know if I fully agree with the outcome because if there is any question at all of someone being subject to pain that is equivalent to being burned alive, maybe 
we should hold off <laughs> and just kind of wait and see or do more research to find out how, you know, whether or not that is true. Right. Yeah. The, um, the majority opinion, which Justice Alito also wrote, as you mentioned, Zach, um, it rests on kind of an interesting syllogism that I'm not sure I agree with, um, because he, he holds, first of all, that if, the death penalty is constitutional, which the court has previously held that it is, um, then there must be a constitutional way of carrying it out, which I think is true insofar as it's a tautology, such that if there were no constitutional way of carrying it out, then it wouldn't be constitutional. Right. But, um, but then he goes on to say that it's the petitioner's burden that if they want uh, the midazolam to be declared unconstitutional, they have to identify an available alternative means, meaning since the sodium theopental is not available to the state, it's the prisoner's responsibility to identify some other avenue of an equally effective drug, which does not really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's pretty unfair to the prisoners, too. Yeah, that's what Sotomayor said, too. Right. Typically speaking, the burden of uh, complying with the Constitution is not placed on the people who are uh, asserting their rights underneath it. Right. So and it, it, that part didn't make a lot of sense to me um, in Justice Alito's opinion. The, the difficulty with this question is that there's this long history of back and forth um, cases about the death penalty and whether or not it's constitutional. And some justices, in fact, Justice Breyer wrote a separate dissent in which he said he thinks the death penalty might violate the Eighth Amendment altogether. Um, and then there are some conservative justices, Justice Scalia among them, who view this as a war of attrition against the death penalty and think that, um, the, you know, these are just liberals trying to chip away at it until it's not possible anymore. And they think it's undemocratic because there are states that have clearly voted to retain the death penalty, so they don't view it as the role of a federal court to change that, since clearly the death penalty was considered acceptable at the time the constitution was enacted and they think that's kind of the end of the question but i'm not convinced that in this case the burden of the state to not be administering a cruel and unusual punishment is actually being met yeah well it'll be interesting to see if this question comes back around or if Breyer opened up the doors to some i think that's what he was trying to do because he said about the death penalty itself yeah he said he thinks there's a ser- you know a serious chance that the death penalty could violate the eighth amendment and right. then he says you know at the very least i think the court should you know call for a full briefing on this basic question so i think yeah. he's trying to open the door and scalia is trying to keep it keep it shut yeah well i guess we'll see so yeah it'll be interesting to watch see if the court in maybe the future future terms will reopen that question well moving right along to happier topics let's talk about raisins raisins <laughs> yeah i wonder if this is the first time the supreme court has considered raisins in a case that's a really good question the first time was the previous iteration of this case right oh right <laughs> oh, i think this is point. the first time the court has made a definitive ruling on, on raisins. constitutionality <laughs> taking other people's raisins ah <laughs> or other people's healthy snacks in the words of chief justice roberts sure. raisins are a healthy snack so he says, I don't know if my baby can eat them. He might choke. But yes. for everyone <laughs> old, raisins are a healthy snack. Right. Um, so, right. So this case was really interesting because it dealt with a New Deal era um, sort of market regulation schema wherein the federal government 
through the Department of Agriculture, um, was attempting to keep the price of raisins high by limiting the supply of raisins to the market. So the way they did this was by requiring everyone who grows raisins, and I guess, I think you grow grapes and then they dry into raisins, right? I think so. That that's that's my understanding. Yeah. <laughs> I'd buy that. <laughs> I'm not a raisin expert, but I think that's how it works. And then... Um, I thought raisins just grew on trees. They were just... <laughs> All shriveled. Just little raisins. If we have there. a listener who knows more about raisins than we do, please write in and let us know. Maybe someone like your hops farmer friend. Maybe someone's mm. a raisin. Yeah, yes. we'll have to ask him. <laughs> so in any case, every raisin grown in the state of California had to be turned over, according to this law from 1949. So it's it's been around for a while. Um, do you know if this yeah. only applied to California raisins? I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know whether there are other raisin growers in the United States. If there are, I'm sorry for overlooking you. But yes, I believe this was just California raisins. Mm. Um, so they had to turn all their raisins over to their, these people called raisin handlers. And then uh, there was a board that would determine what percentage of the raisin crop from that year could be sold and what percentage would be uh, reserved and would go into what they call the raisin reserve, which I don't know if that's like a pile of raisins. <laughs> yeah, just a <laughs> giant mound of raisins. <laughs> <laughs> what they did with the raisin reserve. But um, then the handlers would pay the raisin farmers only for the percentage of their crop that was allowed to be sold. So, you know, if I, as a raisin farmer, grew a 100 trucks full of raisins and then they only sold 60% of them, I would only be paid for 60% of them. Um, so lousy. So the court decided that this was an illegal taking of raisins, right? Right. right. Yeah, there was there was like <laughs> verbatim raisin. an illegal taking of raisins. Actually, is what they what they determined. Yeah, <laughs> there was like a raisin bandit who uh, defied this order and went ahead and became his own raisin handler, packaged up the raisins that he grew and sold a hundred percent of them in defiance of the raisin reserve order for that year. Um, and was fined a large amount of money and then sued under the Fifth Amendment. And the court agreed that, in fact, you cannot just take someone's raisins and not pay him for them because um, the Fifth Amendment has a little clause prohibiting that. So, um, Yeah, again, seems like kind of a, an obvious but important decision to make nonetheless. Right. It's funny how many things out there are probably unconstitutional and no one has challenged them. Because right. The yeah, that, no, it's incredible that this ha hasn't been challenged since the New Deal. That's right. amazing. Yeah. So um, I think my favorite part of this case, so first of all, it's worth mentioning this was an eight to one case. The sole dissenter here was Sotomayor, who said that the program was not a classic taking because it did not deprive the horns of all their property rights. I'm, oh, I'm huh. reading that from the New York Times summary That's of the case. Interesting. I don't. So she thinks it's okay for the government to take like eighty percent of your property without paying you for it. So let me read. Let me read the excerpt from the New York Times that uh, Sotomayor wrote in her opinion. What makes the court's twisting of the doctrine even more baffling is that it ultimately instructs the government that it can permissibly achieve its market control goals by imposing a quota without offering raisin producers a way of reaping any return whatsoever on the raisins they cannot sell. Okay. Maybe so there's that, I guess. When they're not allowed to sell them, they go into the reserve and maybe they sell them later. How long yeah, do raisins so last? I don't know. I wouldn't eat your old raisins. I know that. But, you know, my favorite part of this case is actually Justice Thomas's concurrence with the majority opinion, where he's responding to a separate concurrence from Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, and Kagan, who said that basically they should have just re returned the case to the lower courts for determination of whether the program 
helped or hurt the raising growers. And just as Thomas said, such a move would be a fruitless exercise. Ah. <laughs> so funny. So. Uh, you knew that he was just waiting to use yeah, that Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's just trying to find a way to work or in fruitless. some researcher who was just dying to say that. Justice Thomas is a, he, he's a little bit of a, you know, because he sits there in oral argument and never asks questions. Right. There are times when he's famous for never asking questions. And there are wow. times when he looks like he's asleep, which he might be. He probably I is, yeah. Um, I would, I mean, I would like to think he's listening, but Hopefully. in any case, you know, there's, he's just got a wicked sense of humor, just waiting to <laughs> throw in a pun here and there. Exactly. Oh boy. That's, awesome. that's what I would do if I were Supreme Court justice. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's the most just, important just part of Just write puns justice. from the bench, fall asleep in oral arguments. That's the dream. I don't know if he is asleep. Justice Thomas, if you're listening to this, I believe that you're awake. <laughs> We know he is listening to this, so. Right. He's our biggest listener, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, now that we've talked about raisins, on to something One more case. different. Yes. Fourth and final, we're going to talk about Jerusalem and passports. Yeah. And... This one's pretty interesting. <laughs> it's the only foreign affairs case we're talking about today. And it has to do with the relationship that the American foreign policy establishment has had with the state of Israel. Uh, also deals with separation of power. So it's pretty interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. So there was a family that put Drew, they, their child was born in Jerusalem and they put that on their passport, but they wanted to put Israel on their passport, right? They wanted it to say that they were from Israel. Right. There's a, um, so yeah, the, I believe that the parents were American born um, and they had a baby in Jerusalem. And there's actually a federal law from 2003 instructing the state department that upon request, um, a passport shall be designated, uh, or a birthplace can be designated Israel on a passport if a child was born in Jerusalem. So, so it's important to note this law was passed under the George W. Bush administration. Right, and so the case was initiated under the George W. Bush administration right. as well. Um, it's been pending for quite a while. But uh, effectively, the court held that because the executive has what it terms an exclusive recognition power, meaning that only the president can say who is a country for purposes of American foreign relations. So, like, if I set up camp in my backyard and started a country, unless the president acknowledged it, I couldn't do any sort of international business with the United States. Um, anyway, so they held that since the government has that exclusive recognition power, and has consistently declined to acknowledge any country's sovereignty over Jerusalem, then Congress cannot order a branch of the executive. Namely, in this case, the State Department. Right? right, to recognize Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem by saying that someone born in Jerusalem was born in Israel. Do you know if this exclusive recognition theory is pretty much settled law, or is this disputed? Um, it, I mean, it was disputed in the opinions in the case. Um, yeah, the, we had six, it was a six, three, six, three. Yeah. And there, there were some cross cutting opinions. It was kind of interesting. Um, the, so the recognition power is not explicit in the constitution. The majority in this case right. based on receiving the ambassadors. ambassadors clause of the constitution. Yeah. Um, I think it's fairly generally accepted that the president has that power. Um, 
But the question in some of the dissents was whether this is actually a case about recognition at all, because the United States has already recognized Israel as a country. So the question um, could be argued is actually about territorial disputes over um, unclear boundaries. So, like, for instance, uh, Kashmir is a disputed territory between India and Pakistan, and the United States has recognized both India and Pakistan. Um, and so the dissenters were arguing that Congress could direct the executive to behave in a certain way with respect to Kashmir, treating it as if it were, for instance, part of India, without impinging on, or infringing on, sorry, the president's recognition power. So that was kind of the basis for the dispute in the case. But as the case held, the president has an exclusive power, and uh, the passport law violated that power. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, the, the law came into effect in 2003, like you said, Muriel, which is under the, the W. Bush administration. And so the George W. Bush administration refused to implement it, and the uh, Barack Obama administration has just followed the suit. So this is, you know, there are cross-cutting opinions in the case where Thomas sides with the normally liberal majority, and then this is really a um, an issue that uh, cuts across partisan lines because we had a Republican presidential administration that ignored the law and now a Democratic one. So it's, it's a really interesting question. To me, it's more about separation of powers. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm more curious about the... Um, the kind of the the claim that the president has the the sole right of recognition. Well, that's what the chief justice um, took issue with because he was saying that receiving ambassadors is a presidential duty rather than a power, and that the authority to to make treaties and appoint ambassadors is shared with Congress, and that doesn't support the conclusion that recognition power is exclusive. So. Right. So it seems obviously uh, clear from the Constitution that the president can make treaties, but then they have to be approved by two-thirds of the Senate, right? right. And then and then what, what else is clear is that Congress has the uh, most, I should say, powerful foreign policy tool in its tool chest, which is making war. Uh, but then on top of that, Congress also has the ability to regulate commerce with foreign nations. And this is all spelled out in Article 1, Section 8. So to well, you actually, you made a somewhat contest, contentious assertion, though, because Congress has the constitutional power to declare war. There are those who argue that the executive is the branch that actually makes war. Yeah, so, I mean, what I, what I should have said is that Congress declares war. I shouldn't have said wage because the president is clearly the commander-in-chief. But I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is that, you know, the president receives ambassadors, sure, but Congress declares war. The president then has to carry out that war as the executor and the executive. And then, you know, the president can make these treaties, but then the Congress has to approve them. So it seems so like, very overlapping. yeah, it seems like these are the two branches of the three in the U.S. government that deal with foreign policy. So it's hard to say that's an exclusive power. Right. So it's hard to say the recognition power is the exclusive territory of one versus the other. Right. It seemed to me like from the majority opinion, the argument that the majority was making was primarily a functional one in that um, if... Congress could be permitted to direct the executive to, in some sense, acknowledge Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem. That could impair the executive's ability to have an authoritative voice in, for instance, peace negotiations, because it could look like the United States, through the Congress, but then also through the executive action in accord with congressional directives, was taking a side in the question of who has the right to Jerusalem, essentially. Right, right. And I have sympathy with, because it does seem like in the 
in the sort of negotiation part of foreign affairs, the president has the unity that is kind of essential for effective negotiations, which I think is why the Constitution gives the president the power to make the treaties. Yeah, I mean, head of state, absolutely. Right. Makes sense. Cool. Well, that's your four cases for our listeners. Yeah, if you hadn't heard of those, that's some of what happened in last term. And now, Muriel, you gave us a little hint of that we might, we're going to see possibly more about the Hobby Lobby case, more about religious freedom in October 2015 term. Maybe the death penalty. Yeah, maybe, maybe the death penalty. Do we? Do you know of any other issues that are going to crop up that we should keep our eye out for? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is, I know there is at least one case about the death penalty having okay. to do, I think, with... Um, mental disability and what how that plays into a state's laws about the death penalty in terms of juries it's complicated i don't really know um death penalty cases coming up there they're fairly frequent um there are more cases about hobby lobby in the lower courts i wouldn't be surprised if we saw more of that there are a few cases already on the docket about the one person one vote schema that um is a pretty uh it's sort of a landmark doctrine that the court adopted in the mid-20th century um, in terms of equal representation. So a couple of different um, specific districting plans are up for review um, as to the equality of them. And then there is a rehearing of some aspect of the Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin affirmative action case that was oh, yeah. pretty significant a few years back in I'm not exactly sure which aspect of it they're reviewing, but, um, you know, sometimes Supreme Court cases that seem pretty final are actually just waiting for more debate. So those just are like just raisins. Like, just like raisins. Just like raisins. <laughs> the healthy snack. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Muriel, for joining us in this conversation. This and- has been far from fruitless. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'll just go have some raisins, I guess. Right. Yeah, that would be very appropriate. A fruitful and healthy snack. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much. We look forward to having you back again to talk about some more interesting topics. It's my pleasure. All right. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was about to say. All right. That wraps up episode one of season two. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes. It was, as we mentioned, a very different format, but we really enjoy this one, and we're looking forward to doing more episodes just like this. Let us know what you thought of it, Zach and Sally, at vernacularpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, at vernacularpod. Or on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Check out our website and look at our blog posts, which we will have to follow up on this episode. And you can contact us there and let us know if you'd like to be on our show in a future episode. You can submit a questionnaire from the homepage Uh, telling us about yourself if you are interested in having a conversation with us in a future episode. So please do that. Also, give us a review on iTunes if you like what you heard or you didn't like what you heard. Let us know how we can be better. And you can listen to all of our previous episodes from season one as well on our website or on iTunes iTunes or on Stitcher. Stitcher, right. And you can find all those links on our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And email us so that we know, so that we have an inbox section for next episode. Right. We're not doing one today because it's a whole new slate. Season two, episode one. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening here at Vernacular Podcast. Sally and I wish all of you a very happy Labor Day. And look forward to our next episode, which will be two weeks from now. Bye-bye for now. Feeling better than ever When I'm by your side
when you're with me. 